Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a special community event with Francis Weller, titled Living in the Ashes, Communal Grief, and the North Bay Fires, held at Congregation Ne'er Shalom in Sonoma County, Northern California. So good evening, welcome. So glad that so many of us were able to be here tonight. Welcome to the new school at Commonweal, Sonoma Branch. I'm Erwin Keller. I serve here at Congregation Ne'er Shalom as the rabbi, um, but I'm also one of the hosts for the Commonweal New School and really um, delighted to have Francis with us tonight. Um, and I'll introduce Francis in a second. But I just wanted to, to say that being in a room with a lot of people who have experienced what we have experienced over the past month is something that I notice. You know, I notice being in um, a, a room full of people who shared this experience or some, some facet of this experience in a way that, you know, I, otherwise I would be in a room full of people and it would be like, oh, nice, a room full of people. But um, I feel it in my body tonight and have been um, at, at gatherings over the past few weeks. So I'm glad that everyone tonight decided to opt in and to be here um, with community, to be here with friends and with strangers with whom we share now um, a certain kind of bond. So um, I'd like to introduce Francis Weller. Francis is a psychotherapist, writer, and soul activist. He's a master of synthesizing diverse streams of thought from psychology, anthropology, mythology, alchemy, indigenous cultures, and poetic traditions. I think many people here have read his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. He also wrote with Roshani Rea, The Threshold Between Loss and Revelation. He's the founder and director of Wisdom Bridge, which is an organization that offers educational programs that integrate the wisdom of indigenous cultures with the insights and knowledge gathered from Western poetic, psychological, and spiritual traditions. Um, I also know um, Francis through Commonweal. Francis staffs the cancer help program um, at Commonweal for the week-long retreats with Michael Lerner. And right now, Francis is finishing his third book, A Trail on the Ground, Living a Soulful Life and Why It Matters. Let's welcome Francis Weller. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to be with you all. As Erwin was saying, this is a very particular quality of field that we are sharing right now. I sit in my room frequently with patients dealing with you know, individual loss and individual suffering, but the patient is now the community. We are the patient. We are the one who is suffering, and we can't disentangle our private individual suffering from the, from the collective. So it is very important that we gather together in community to address our sorrows. Sorrow and grief were never, in our long story as a species, managed privately. It has always been communal. Always, always been communal, until very recently. And so we're trying to nip back the original matrix 
of what the psyche needs in order to address sorrow. But before we do that, we have to move our bodies a little bit. And we need to sing a little bit. And we need to hear a little bit of poetry. When we start our weekends of grief ritual work, I share a story by my friend Miguel Rivera, who is uh, one of the teachers at the Minnesota Men's Conference, which I've been teaching at for a little while. And he shared, you know, in the village in Guatemala, one of the elders was saying, when we get together, we sing and we dance for five hours, and we talk for 10 minutes. <laughs> you guys get together and you talk for five hours, and maybe you dance and drum for 10 minutes. That might be your problem. <laughs> so I think it's very hard to grieve with a body that's asleep. So we have to wake up our bodies. We have to move our bodies. We have to remember that these are animal bodies that like to move and dance and sing. So if you feel so inclined but no obligation, I would encourage you to, just for a few minutes, to stand up even where, you stay, where you're sitting and just move your body a little bit. say sit down. <laughs> Stand up. So we're going to do a couple, a couple songs just to, uh, in a way, bring our voices together. Because this, this sense of being together and, and having our voices merge together is part of what some ancient part of us remembers, that this is how we did it that we used to come together and we would sing together and we would grieve together, we would celebrate together, all of it in communion, in, in, in common. So, um, we'll see, if I can sing, you can sing, okay? <laughs> I'm not the greatest singer, but my friend Doug Von Koss, who's taught me most of these songs, says when we're singing together, we're working in a perfection-free zone. So, no pressure, all right? The first chant comes from a man named Lawrence Cole, 
And it's a chant that uh, acknowledges the fact that, for the most part, we are living on stolen ground. Uh, this is part of our deep grief as a culture. And we have not really redressed the tremendous sorrows that come with the fact of what we've done to the native cultures and to the importation of slavery and so forth. So let's see if we can sing this one. It's called Humbly We Walk Here. Humbly we walk here, humbly we sing here. Humbly we walk here, humbly we sing here. Humbly we bless this ground. Humbly we bless this ground. Put that all together. Humbly, humbly we walk here, humbly we stand here. Humbly we bless this ground. Again. Humbly we walk here, humbly we sing here. Humbly we bless this ground. Good. Second part. Humbly and with gratitude. Humbly and with gratitude. Listen again. Humbly and with gratitude. Humbly and with gratitude. Remembering the ancient song, remembering the ancient ones who walked this ground. Remembering the ancient ones who walked this ground. Let's put that all together. Humbly and with gratitude. Remembering the ancient ones who walked this ground. Again. Humbly and with gratitude. Remembering the ancient ones who walked this ground. Okay. You're going to help this side. This side, you're going to sing that first part. <laughs> there will be no test. Okay. Humbly we walk here, humbly we sing here, humbly we bless this ground. Humbly we walk here, humbly we sing here, humbly we bless this ground. Humbly we walk here, with gratitude we sing here, remembering the ones who walk this ground. Humbly we walk here, with gratitude we sing here, remembering the ones who walk this ground. Humbly we walk here, humbly we sing here, remembering the Humbly we walk here, humbly we sing here, remembering the ancient Humbly we walk here, humbly we sing here, remembering we bless Humbly we walk here, humbly we sing here, humbly we bless this ground. Nice, thank you. That was good. Please, please. <laughs> Second one is a, little, a bit of a round. We'll try a little round here. 
we can't quite determine whether it's African or Italian, so we, we call it we call it Afro-Italiano. So the words are very simple: Belle Mama, Belle Mama, which means beautiful mother. Okay, Belle Mama, Belle Mama, yeah. No, is that the right one? Belle Mama, Belle Mama, yeah. That's it. Belle Mama, Belle Mama, yeah. Again. Belle mama, belle mama, belle mama, belle mama, again, belle mama, 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 So the first one and the last one are the same, okay? Let's sing it all the way through three or four times, then we'll dare to break it into a round. <laughs> Belle mama, belle mama, yeah. Belle mama, 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 Okay. So let's slice them up right here. Right here. I got this one. Right here. Ooh. And right here. All right? All right? So once you start it, keep it going, all right? Belle mama, belle mama, yeah. Belle mama, belle mama, yeah. Belle mama, 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 yeah. Stay with that. 
makes a huge difference. Barbara Hirschfeld, I'm wondering if you might be willing to share a poem with us. Hello? Working? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, I, I have to say I just flew in from Europe <laughs> last night. And although I wasn't here, I was here during fires and uh, for a week after the fires, but then I had a scheduled trip, so I left. But even though I was gone, I mean, I just felt so connected to this community wherever I went. And of course, everybody in Europe knows about these fires. <coughs> I mean, there's nobody who doesn't know about these fires. And uh, so, but right after the fire, um, I wrote a poem. So. And everyone asked me to read it, so this happened to me. Um, while in my house in West County, uh, you know, ash was falling and smoke, as we all know, and a piece of paper drifted down onto my driveway. And I have a retreat center on my property. So this piece of paper is in the poem. A piece of paper drifted down from the sky amidst the ash and dirt. The paper was part of a dictionary. It landed by the sanctuary door. The words defined were tempest and temple. And so it was from the tempest to the temple, from the storm of fire to the sanctuary, and on the edge of the page partially charred the word temporary. <laughs> <laughs> Scattered over rooms and fields, the pieces of my life are not to be gathered. Take your valuables, they say. They are scattered. They cannot be gathered. Ceaseless roaming, scattered memories. Can all of what I care about fit on this memory stick? Thank you. Uh, happen to have Larry's poem here, if you'd like, <clears throat> which I thought was really wonderful. It's by Larry Robinson. Falling. In these awe-filled days of fire and flood, we watch and wait and wonder when that fierce hand might reach at last for us. Those of us not yet touched by calamity quake knowing in our bones that though we may be spared this time, time will level us all. No magic amulets, no prayers, 
good deeds or good looks can promise protection from our terminal condition. And those who have watched a child swept forever from our arms or fled the flames that swallowed our hopes and our memories or hid from the bombs or the predator's gaze know that nothing now will ever be the same as if anything ever were. For all of us are falling like ashes, like rain, like petals or leaves, but we all are falling together. And if we knew in truth there was nowhere to land, tell me, could we know the difference between falling and flying? Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Barbara. Waiting for the calamity to come. You know, there's so much about the, the there's so much about this experience that was both the experience of, of having had loss, having experienced loss of all sorts, of material goods, of loved ones, of homes. And all of that is represented in this room tonight. And also the loss of certainty, the illusion of certainty that we all, that we all live with. Um, there was a moment, there was a moment in the first night of the fire that, that there was this tremendous leveling effect where um, everyone let go, right? Everyone let go. There was, um, many people let go of their houses, they got in their cars, and they went, and none of us knew um, and then things, then information came over the subsequent days, and some of us had the certainty of loss, and some of us still didn't know, and some of us had the reprieve. Um, and uh, so I'm interested in knowing how we hold, how we hold grief together when we, as, as a community, as a community we've experienced this, but as individuals we've experienced very different things. Uh, loss is not uh, very discriminating. It touches us all. And it is what I call the commons of the soul. When we walk down the street in any given day, every face you pass knows sorrow. But we live in a very heroic culture. So we're taught to show the strong face, the confident face, the I've got it together face. But the moment we get behind that, which is what this firestorm did, it revealed the vulnerability we all possess, that none of us are exempt from feeling our own fragility and from feeling the ground being pulled out from underneath us. It also collapses that heroic ideal that somehow I can get through this alone. I'll get through life you know, without having to need anybody, without having to depend on anybody. We've even made dependency a disease in psychology, you know. I think they're codependent. I think they actually need somebody. So we have to reclaim certain things, you know, from this heroic ideal and begin to restore what the soul actually requires in order to live here sanely. You know, uh, when we do our grief gatherings, we have people traveling sometimes three and 4,000 miles. We have people coming from other countries, traveling all the way just for the privilege to grieve together. 
And you hear that that's actually at the very heart of our grief, that this is not happening in every community. This should be, you shouldn't have to travel 3,000 miles to grieve with other human beings. I want you to really hear that that's really at the heart of our grief, of how much we have forgotten. You know, we live in a time of the great forgetting. The two primary diseases of our time are amnesia and anesthesia. We forget and we go numb. And those become kind of the ways in which we survive our day-to-day lives. And in part, there's a wisdom to that anesthesia. We're not wired to process this much trauma every single day. We're wired for localized trauma. You know, we're wired that someone's son was swept away in a river and we have to get together to to weep that loss or, you know, something happened in the community, there was an illness, you know, or something happened, but it was localized and our psyches could digest that. We could metabolize that layer of grief. But we are really, I think, inundated collectively on a day-by-day basis. What was the one today? The shooting in Texas? You know, preceded by the shooting in New York? The, I mean, what do we do with this, right? So without adequate means to keep um, emptying the communal cup, we begin to be almost inundated by the gradual accumulation of sorrow. People come into my office some, you know, frequently saying they're depressed. And really, it is not depression. It is oppression. It is the weight of a lifetime of grief that has not been digested. And it's like sediment. It settles on the psyche. It settles on the bones. It settles in our hearts over time. And if we do not address it, we become hardened, we become you know, unable to feel the beauty of this world. We become cynical and bitter. So we talk about this as soul activism. And partly the why, we, why it's so important that we are really skillful at grieving is so that our hearts can stay open. So that we can register not only the, the sorrows of the world, but the extraordinary beauty of this world. You know? I have no idea if I've answered your question, but... <laughs> it doesn't... It doesn't what was the question? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to come from a tradition where, where grief is public, where grief is handled on a communal yeah, level. Yeah. Um, in the Jewish tradition, um, when you lose someone who's close to you, you have, you have Shiva, you have seven days in which people are in your house and they're just there to be around you, um, not to entertain you or to talk to you. Make sure you eat. Um, they're there, they make sure you eat. Um, that's an important piece of it. And then there's a period of 30 days and there's a period of a year. And during this time, there's a prayer, a mourner's cottage that you say for, uh, on behalf of your loved one who died. And it's a prayer that in traditional Judaism, you have to say with a minion. You have to say with a quorum of 10 people. You, can't, you don't say it alone. You have to actually show up and be witnessed Um, I grew up in a synagogue where everybody stands for this prayer because six million people died in the Shoah, and so we all stand for them, that kind of thing. But after my father died, I realized how much I valued being 
at a conservative or orthodox synagogue for that moment because I got to stand up and be witnessed by a room full of people who then understood what I was going through. Um, and we even have a term that's used um, uh, for you during the time between your, when your loved one dies and when they're buried. And then another term that's, that applies to you, a title that applies to you for the first year. And uh, in, in the way that, for instance, we have the word orphan or widow in, in English, which applies to you for your whole life, there's a, a term in Hebrew that applies to you for the year. But it's a way that you can be seen. And one of the things that I've, I've been noticing in this is I've only left the county once since the fires. I, I, and, and it was very strange. Oh, twice. Once I saw you. And we were having the shared yes. experience yeah. of this of being around people who hadn't been here and what that was like um, and um, how difficult it was to be suffering in the particular ways that we were around people who were suffering less or not at all. Everybody was suffering, but suffering less. You are listening to a TNS special community event with Francis Weller and Erwin Keller. So, uh, is this a question? Okay, so, so, uh, so, I, I, so I, I come from a tradition where, where grief is handled on some level communally. And I've noticed in working here as a rabbi that more and more as people assimilate into American culture, they dispense with that. And when there's a death, I talk to people about Shiva and they said, well, like I, I pressure them into having an afternoon where people come over. Um, and it's very hard for them to say yes even to that. And they, they say, I'll just go back to work on Monday. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's very hard to watch. We are very uh, addicted to privatization in this culture. We privatize everything. You know, we're trying to privatize water rights. But psychology is colluded with this too in terms of privatizing emotion. Um, you know, the idea of owning your own feelings. Well, I don't think they're mine. <clears throat> they're visitors. They're what are moving on the current of psyche and soul, and my job is to be a good host for them. But the moment we begin to privatize them, we're in trouble. You know, uh, it deprives the, the emotion of what it needs, which is deep witnessing. So grief is not a problem to be solved. It's a presence awaiting witnessing. I can tell you so many stories of times when people have kept that grief so private. And again, what happens to that grief is it becomes bitter. Our psyche is waiting for the signals to be given that it's been witnessed, particularly in this difficult state. I remember one ritual we did where there's a woman there who, it was just a day-long ritual, so we didn't get to really hear all the stories that were in the room. But after the ritual was over, she stood up and she said, I want to just tell you that 14 years ago, my husband and my two children were killed in a car accident. And every week, I would take my lawn chair and I would go and sit in the cemetery and I would weep and weep and weep, but always alone. And over time, people began to avoid me because my grief turned bitter. They would say to me, I had a really hard day today. And she would say to them, did you bury your family today? And she said, they didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that. 
But today, when I came back from the grief shrine and I was welcomed and I was thanked for my tears, my heart began to soften. There's a signal we're waiting for, that we're hungry for, that I have been seen and held and even appreciated for my tears. See, if we get out of the privatized fiction, whether that's private healing, private salvation, I have to stop doing the P's, this is hard on me. <laughs> uh, but privatization makes it happen this way, that I have to somehow get it together all by myself. And if we can let go of this fiction, this fantasy of privatizing and private healing and begin to see that this is part of the communal cup, we all share this. Well, the little ritual we're going to do today, uh, this night, will just kind of give us a visual image of this. That your grief is not yours alone. When we go around the circle at the beginning of the, of, the, of the community ritual and all the different threads of grief are named, I may not know all of them, but the feeling tone around them is utterly familiar. I know that. I know that. This is not yours. This is not mine. This is ours. And the only way I think we can actually heal and tend to the deep grief is in that context of ours, you know. But the conditioning is intense, particularly for men in this culture, to go it alone, to not need anyone. I often say that not a single man has shown up my office voluntarily. (laughs) (laughs) They have shown up because they've been defeated by an illness, by divorce, by a death, by a loss of a job, something has knocked them off the horse. And if they are able to, that is a moment of profound grace. When they can begin to admit that they actually require support and help and holding to process the sorrows of life. There's another layer on it in in this instance. I mean, there's... I mean, certainly many people will feel like they need, to, they need to shut this down, they need to handle it privately. But there's also those of us who, who believe in sort of the communal witnessing of, of grief and expression of grief, but we're surrounded by people who also went through something terrible. And you never know if, if you're talking to somebody who suffered worse. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I know that it's, it's made me hesitant. You know, I notice... When I, if I'm sitting in a, in a cafe and talking about the fires, I'm very aware that the person who's bringing me my coffee might have lost their house. And so it makes me, it makes me um, more tentative about actually expressing how I'm suffering. And I'm wondering how, uh, how you suggest we hold that, how we hold that quandary. Well, the, the problem with comparisons is, is a big one. We can do that every single day. We can compare our grief to somebody else's and somebody else will find has got more. It doesn't matter. You know, in some ways, if we honor our grief as it's landing in our bodies, it will take me to the communal hall where we will all meet there. And we will all weep there. So it doesn't really matter. Um, We want to, this is going to take us a long time to digest. My concern is is that the heroic overlay begins to settle upon the ash and we didn't have to have time to digest the ashes so I'm, I'm very glad that you're all here tonight 
And I hope that we are willing to have the courage to stay true to the sorrows that are here, because all the stories need to be told, and all of them need witnessing, and every one of them is worthy of being witnessed, right? Probably repeatedly, until there's enough holding and enough digesting. See, grief, in order to be released, requires two things. It requires containment and release. But if I'm doing it by myself, I can't do both jobs at the same time. What do you mean by containment? An adequate holding field, whether that's a, a group of uh, 10 people holding minion, that's an adequate holding field. Or whether it's a, a, a small grief ritual or a group of people gathering in someone's home for the night saying, tonight our topic is sorrow. We will hold each other adequately. If I'm left to do it by myself, I can't do both jobs at the same time. So what I end up doing is surrendering to containment. I become a permanent containment field for my grief. So I just keep recycling. Have you ever noticed you're still chewing the same bones that have maybe been there for 40 years, 50 years? You know? It's like a fine wine. <laughs> my grudges. <laughs> Maybe so, yeah. But they need that containment in order for us to have one job to do, which is to release. To really be able to be given permission to be on the floor or wherever I am, letting the grief tears fall. Yeah. But comparisons can be very inhibiting. Uh, they can really make us feel almost embarrassed or ashamed of our grief, like it's not big enough, you know? Yeah. Back at um, the cancer help program, um, one of the terms that you kept using a lot was rough initiation. And I was wondering if, if you might speak to that and how it applies to us in this situation and the experience that we've had and what that then means. When I'm working at the cancer program, sitting with usually eight people who um, did not ask for this, uh, but nonetheless, this is what's in their laps. And I called it a rough initiation. In the old traditions, initiations were designed to create a radical alteration in one's being. And three things typically happen in a true, genuine initiation. There is a, a severing from the world that you knew. There's a radical alteration in one's sense of identity. And there's a profound realization that I can never go back to the way things were. Now, when that diagnosis comes, either you know on the phone or in person, the world you lived in is over. And you begin to become somebody you don't even recognize. I can't tell you how many times during those weeks people say, I don't know who I am anymore. You lose all of the familiar footing. The ground falls out. And there's a profound realization that I cannot go back to the life I had. Now, in initiation, you're not meant to go back to that life, right? You're meant to become a changed human being, a radically altered human being who is now attuned to the well-being of the community. I think cancer has that same opportunity. I think this crisis has that same opportunity. This is a rough initiation. We did not ask for this. But it is the conditions we find ourselves in. The world we knew is over. Right? Whether we talk about it in terms of impermanence or in, a, in um, the trauma treatment world, they call it absolutisms. 
that your absolutism's like absolutely will be fine tomorrow. I'll, you know, I'll get up and the sun will be there and my, my children will still be alive and everything will be fine. The house will be here. The absolutisms of your life get shaken. In the German language, the word for trauma is Selnerschütterung, which means soul shaking. So we have this rough initiation has shaken the soul of the community. And, you know, we cannot, we have, we've been severed from that earlier life. It will radically alter our sense of identity, who we are now. And I'm hoping that's a ripening process. Because the, the deep work of grief, if we really are true to it, it is, I think, the most powerful means by which we ripen as human beings. We mature. We become, I, I talk about an apprenticeship with sorrow which maybe we'll talk about in a minute. But in the old language, apprenticeships were meant to create people who were very, very skillful at uh, weaving or carpentry or uh, painting. You became a master through your apprenticeship. The apprenticeship with sorrow, if you truly follow it through to its end, the outcome is an elder. That's someone who has stared right into the face of the fiercest winds of loss, and has stayed true to it and did not turn away from it, but was remade over and over and over again, like a winnowing, an emptying of an old identity until you became something so translucent that you are now holding the sacred worlds together and walking down the street with that energy. So tell us what, what that process is like. What does it mean to be to your sorrow? what it means, what this winnowing looks like over time. I think it takes uh, tremendous courage to stay true to it because there is no place in this culture that says this is something you should do. You get the exact opposite message constantly. Uh, I remember after 9-11, There was a moment, wasn't there, when the window of sorrow was there and the culture, in fact, the whole planet was somehow in that place of melancholy, of deep grief. And the window was open. My wife and I went to New York City because my son had just moved there to go to college. And uh, we went to visit him in October. We went downtown. And everywhere, everywhere were shrines. And everywhere were circles of people, some weeping openly, some singing, some silently. But we had this instinctive moment that this is what we need to do. We need to gather, we need to open this, and we need to have the courage and the willingness to to feel it all. To feel it all is part of it. And then the window slammed. We were told to go shopping, and we're going to war. And we haven't recovered that place yet, you know. So what does it look like? It, it, it's an act of deep admission that I am unable to do this alone. So the first step, I think, is a certain um, willingness to uh, admit our vulnerability and our perfectly inadequate lives. I think we're designed 
perfectly inadequate. So we cannot carry the fantasy of getting from here to there alone. It's a wonderful little poem by Robert Creeley. He said, um, finally, how does it go, finally? Huh? It's love drops. Love drops quietly, finally, around me, in the old way. What did I know, thinking myself, able to go alone all the way? You know, we can't go alone all the way. So that first piece is this admission that I need help. You know, I like, actually, when I'm working with people, that's one of the most valuable moments when they, fear, when they face the edge of their fear, the edge of their grief, and they realize, I cannot take another step by myself. And they need to lean into another human being. That's a moment of redemption. That's a moment of profound healing, you know. And we need to gather regularly in circles. We take better, car, better care of our cars than we do of our souls, you know. We get regularly scheduled maintenance. But if we were sane, we would have regularly scheduled maintenance for our souls. We would have monthly gatherings to weep together. The San Bushmen do this four times a month. They do a ritual from sundown to sunrise, four times a month, to heal the community, to keep the community well. Because they say when one of us is ill, all of us are ill. Now what if we had that as a foundational premise? You know, when one of us are ill, all of us are ill. This isn't your problem, this is ours. And the dance and the ritual is meant to repair the entire village over and over again. See, that's sanity. And they were described as the happiest people on the planet by anthropologists. Now, what is it that makes them so happy? I got to spend some time in the village in Africa and on one occasion, I, I remember saying to this woman, you have so much joy. And her response was, that's because I cry a lot. Mm. A very un-American phrase, you know, not because I shop a lot, <laughs> you know, I got a new car, I keep myself busy. There is some direct intimacy between joy and sorrow, right? And if we close off that deeper register of sorrow, we lose the upper register of joy. Mm -hmm. And we live in what I call a flatline culture. Mm -hmm. There's a very narrow band of what we're allowed to feel and express. And consequently, we, we rely upon excitement and stimulation rather than joy, you know, as a, as a poor substitute for it, you know. The main thing, I think, in, in terms of how do we keep the, the process going is to consistently lean into the body of another. Mm. Do not do this by yourself. Mm. I've been, it, it, you know, I've been thinking about this integration issue. I've been, uh, even just over these few weeks, I realized that the times that I feel the most grief are when I'm alone. Um, because when I'm with others, I find myself with some kind of role. And I think that people very quickly gravitated into roles um, uh, during the emergency, people people figured out what their strengths were and they leaned into that to, to help, which was beautiful and great. And then the question becomes, when can you when can you let go and express this? And how do we create spaces that are safe for us to be able to express our grief? I'm very aware 
of all of the hashtag Sonoma, Sonoma Strong um, signage everywhere. And I, and I want to I wanna redefine what strong means. Right? So strong, strong enough to sorrow, you know. Um, and so how do we bring that, um, it, you know, outside of a room like this? How do we bring that into the work that we're doing? You know, here's the other thing is, while I'm on my soapbox, here's the other thing is the word recovery also. Um, is sort of like as soon as the disaster happens, then recovery begins. And, um, and I find myself resistant to it because, wait, we need some time to sit in this. Um, you know, there's, there's so much just... There's so much that can come from the sitting in it, um, socially as well. Like, how do we want to? How do we want to rebuild? What do we want our county to to look like? What do we want it to offer? Um, what do we want planted here? What kind of energy do we want? I mean, there's so much that we can we can learn and think through on that level before we ever take hammer and nail in hand. But then on the soul level, there's so much. It feels like there's so much sitting that needs to happen before we start um, before we start with our encouraging slogans that's well put um, the soul moves very slowly this is a very ancient intuition um, and so when we rush it when we try to force it into premature revelation uh, we're in trouble one of my earliest teachings on this was sitting with my mentor, uh, Clark Berry. I was licensed at 27 years old. Not my fault. They gave it to me. And I was wise enough to know I needed to sit with somebody who knew what they were doing. So I found, the, called a number of analysts in the area, in, in Oakland area, and um, found this man named Clark Berry. And... Uh, went to see him, and he was ancient. He must have been 60 or something. <laughs> he was so old, I just... Um, but the very first thing he taught me uh, changed my entire way of working with people. He reached over and he patted this big rock he had by his chair. He said, this is my clock. I operate at geologic speed. <laughs> and if you're going to work with the soul, you need to know this rhythm because that's how the soul moves. And he pointed to his clock and says, it hates this. I don't remember a single thing from my graduate studies, but I'll never forget that teaching. And I tell every single person I sit with that story because we're all in this urgent mood to change. And much of that urgency is based on self-hatred. I got to get myself together. I have to fix myself. I have to make myself adequate enough in order to be, you know, to be welcomed into the community. And the psyche will not participate in any agenda based on self-hatred. Um, so we have to learn how to slow down. That's the purpose of ritual, isn't it? That's the purpose of being in spaces that allow time to become elastic and therefore there to be no expectation, but deep reverence for slowness. And we are a manic culture. 
One of the reasons why there's so many symptoms of depression, James Hillman would say, is that psyches attempt to protest mania. That is trying to stop us in our tracks and say, I refuse to operate at that pace. And I'm going to slow you down, whether you do it consciously or not, I'm going to bring you to your knees until you begin to listen to this deeper rhythm that is indigenous to soul and not one that's based on the machine. I have a friend who's from Africa who said, you know, you have to be very careful what you associate with because over time you will begin to match its rhythm. And we are on these little devices all the time and we've begun to match its rhythm, you know. And we have to come back to soul rhythm. In order to move all of this material anywhere, we have to come back to that deeper rhythm of soul. You know? But you remind me of this, this idea of the roles that we're caught in. I once did a, an in-service for a group of Episcopal priests. And not five minutes into my presentation, everyone's eyes were watering. And I just said, let's just stop here and see what's in the room. Like if we did that right now, if we just ask everyone, what's in the room? And one, one person says, well, my divorce was final three weeks ago. My wife died in April. My father-in-law committed suicide. My son has been diagnosed with brain cancer. Uh, my, I just lost my home to foreclosure. We went around the, everyone. And then I asked them, and how many of you have any place to take this? How many hands went up? None. These roles are entrapments. They are massive forms of deprivation that deprive us of the privilege to have what we need in times of great sorrow and great loss. When my mother died uh, in 1992, my brother is a Franciscan priest. He could not let go of the role and be one of the brothers and sisters sitting in the pews weeping, he had to go and say the Mass. I felt sorry for him that he couldn't be one of us. The role trapped him, you know? So we absolutely have to grant each other permission. I will say to you, if you want to weep, I will sit with you. Okay? As I have my friends who I sit with and I weep with. We cannot possibly do this alone, none of us. And let's grant each other permission to not be caught at any identity, but to see through to our humanity that you know sorrow, right? Denise Levertov has a beautiful little poem. She said, to speak of sorrow works upon it, moves it from its crouched place, barring the way to and from the soul's hall. So if we don't speak of sorrow, the way to the soul's hall will become congested and we will begin to feel less and less animated by soul and more and more kind of sedimented by the weight of our grief. Mm. Let's grant each other that massive permission during this extraordinary time. You are listening to a TNS special community event with Francis Weller and Erwin Keller. So tonight we were um, preparing not just to talk about uh, communal grief, but to actually engage in some ritual around it. 
Um, and I'm wondering if, um, as we talk about, or as you tell us about what's going to happen next, if uh, we can also give some idea to people who are watching or listening at home on podcast, um, who might not be in a group of people, um, what might be what might be useful ritual at home? What might be useful ritual when you're alone? Well, that's that's part of the um, part of the illusion that you are ever alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go outside and sit at the base of a tree and be held by an old one mm-hmm. who uh, has certainly seen fires come and go and um, the stones that we're going to hold here in our hands in a minute have been here for millions or billions of years. They know everything. We are a little flea, you know, skipping through. So you don't have to feel like you're doing this alone. You can also talk to the ancestors. You can talk to all the ones who have come before us. I mean, in in fact, everything that has ever been is our ancestor, you know. Um, So you don't have to do this alone. Uh, But if you're at home with a, a few friends, the ritual we're doing right now is something you could simply do, you know, is to... Uh, take your stone, and in the presence of witnessing of others, speak your grief into the stone. In one, in many cultures, stones are the story keepers, since they are the oldest ones here. Mm-hmm. They become like uh, little recording devices. So, and and. Uh, Yeah, they're still working. Um, So take some time before we do this ritual and just sit with with a thread or two of of sorrow that you're carrying in the door tonight. And here's where we begin to think like a village. Uh, But this is our little sudden village tonight. And you don't have to weep every piece of the grief. Trust that the person sitting next to you will pick up another piece and the person sitting in the back row will pick up another piece, and the person sitting way over here will pick up another thread. And collectively, we will mourn it all. We will touch every thread of grief that we need to touch while we're here tonight. But we'll do it together, you know. When we do the grief rituals, I'll often say as we get closer to the time, you know, today you might not grieve. Because it's hard to grieve on demand. You know, it's, it's 3 o'clock, the ritual's starting. Yeah. You know, come on. Come on. However, if it's not your turn tonight, you might help somebody else weep. So you are indispensable to their grieving. And I guarantee you, when we are done, all together, you will feel different, even if you didn't shed one tear, because we wept. The village wept. You know? So this is what I'm really trying to get across primarily is I cannot do this alone. We are in this together. And communally, collectively, we can hold what is in the palm of our hand right now. My piece of grief is our piece of grief. Okay? So what we're going to do in a few minutes is there are five bowls, I think. One, two, Mm-hmm. Four or five bowls of grief. Can
kind of in a regional area. So just take a moment and feel into your piece of grief. And speak it into the stone. Tears are welcome. And then when you are ready, with reverence, bring your stone and very gently place it in one of the bowls and begin to feel the truth that this is our grief. And when everyone's done, we'll come back and complete the ritual. simple gesture but each of these bowls now is touching your other your sorrows and they have mingled and these are our sorrows these stones were gathered out at the coast washed for how many decades centuries by the salt tears of our mother ocean and they will be returned to the ocean now and be washed again. Our salt mixing with her salt, being cleansed again and again and again by that great rhythm 
of the ocean. The other stone is for you to take home to remember this moment of not being alone with your grief, but that you are with others who saw you, who were with you, who joined you in this mutually entangled web of sorrow that we're all in. If there's um, anyone that would like to share anything that came to them in this process, um, either the piece of grief that they spoke into the stone, and but if you would like to speak to um, what it is that you spoke, if the piece of grief that rose up for you surprised you, if it wasn't what you thought you were grieving, um, or you had an experience being around um, other people in this community as this ritual was happening. We were afraid that the fire was going to come to our house. So for me, there was just a lot of fear. And I was living in fear for a bunch of days and, you know, packing stuff, getting it by the door. And then we left for San Luis Obispo. I just felt this need to get away and go to the ocean. And um, our, our house was safe. But what came up tonight was that what's been happening with me <laughs> is I've been wanting to leave California, mm. wanting to leave Sebastopol, wanting to leave my house. Like, I just, I don't want to deal with it. You know, and so it's this big fear reaction and um, almost like PTSD has come up, you know, from my childhood. And I, I want to run, man. I want to get out of here, you know. So that's, that's what came up for me. And the sadness about that. Thank you. One of the things that you will notice is that whenever there is a, a large loss, a major grief in your life, it has the capacity to crack that sediment. And all of the old griefs, all the untended sorrows creep up through the fissures. Yeah. Um, when I moved into my current house, which is a mobile home just above Larkfield, I was literally um, fleeing a volcanic eruption on the Big Island of Hawaii, where um, we we were, uh, God help us, for a period of nine months, um, we knew that we might be given 24 hours to evacuate at any time. Death was not likely, <clears throat> just complete uh, loss of home, disruption, etc. So I came back to Sonoma County because I had no family or friends on the island, and I had two cats to evacuate. Um, when I moved into my home, it has a beautiful view of uh, a meadow, a very large grassy meadow with oak trees that are several hundred years old. And that, um, when I was ending the relationship that I ended when I left Hawaii, I would mentally look out that window. Um, and I thought to myself, I'll be happy to die here. I'll be happy to die looking at this view. And then when I had to evacuate at two in the morning because there were flames a third of a mile away coming towards me and actually coming towards the exit. Um, then for days afterwards, I viewed that beautiful view as tinder 
that could go up at any moment and trap me. And um, what's come with that is uh, I felt I'd had a lot of losses and I thought I was at peace with those losses. And now there's, um, there's that feeling like I may not go gentle into that good night. Mm. There may be a lot of more loss, a lot of pain. Um, in other ways, I'm not having the 60s that I expected. <laughs> in the 40s, I have chronic pain. I am disabled. I don't have a partner. Um, so I, I was surprised at how much loss came up around, um, wow, you know, there's no safety. There's no, I'm not as p at, at peace with things as, as I thought I was. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm noticing um, a tendency that some of us have to measure out our sorrow and our compassion based on what someone's experience was. The first question that someone asks when we're engaging is, did you lose your home? Did you lose everything? And if they did, then we summon up as much sorrow and compassion as we can. If we didn't, then there's this immediate need to brush it off, to go to gratitude. Are you grateful for what you have left? And I feel rushed. I, I feel pushed into only feeling gratitude. And I'm grieving. And on top of um, a series of unfortunate events that we've had through the last six weeks, um, if I turn to social media, I'm faced with all of the grief that my sisterhood is sharing. <laughs> in um, the hashtag Me Too effort. And there's this rising up that I don't have the emotional bandwidth to participate in, but I feel a need to. So when I'm trying to sleep, in addition to trying to remember all of the things that we lost that were special, we didn't lose it all, but we lost a lot. These names are surf surfacing. These experiences are surfacing. Um, what I should have said, what I should have done, who I should call out. Do I have the nerve to um, take that on as well? Do I have the courage to face some of these old wounds? And it's a lot. It's a lot right now. So um, I guess what I came up with in that moment of speaking into the stone is to just remember that we may not be wearing our wounds outside. We may not be speaking to our wounds, but we're all carrying them. And whether your house is still standing or not, we're all deeply hurting from this. And... Um, I just hope that no matter what someone lost, the fact that we all experience this together is deserving of a hug, is deserving of some tears. And 
a moment of maybe looking in someone's eyes. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. We have time for maybe one more. Yeah. I'm noticing for myself how it was very easy to access my grief about the environment, about our watershed, about our children and our future generations and the toxic soup bowl that we're now living in. And that's been the surface of my grief since this started. But tonight allowed me to feel that I'm scared for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm grieving for me mm-hmm. because I'm a cancer survivor and I'm mad as hell that all these toxics are around me right now. And I can't do shit about it. And I'm feeling overwhelmed by the burden that I know too much. Thank you. Rebecca, do you feel like you could give over a poem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have one. I don't have it memorized, so I have to. This is Rebecca Del Rio. It's it's a little peculiar to me that this is the poem I'm reading because it wasn't the thing I was actually grieving. And I think it's because at the moment when I knew that this was as serious as it was, um, I knew what I grieved then. And it was later that um, there was a little more to it I have to find the poem in here somewhere unless somebody else has got it on. <laughs> in there. You have it? Okay, thank you. It takes a village. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much. Is that it? Yeah. It's called When I Thought My House Would Burn. When I thought it would burn, my house would certainly join the fire, become fuel like so many others. I imagined those papers settled in deep boxes, slumbering in a storm. And I was grateful I'd have no chore to undertake, no decisions to make. I imagined the roof flat and sieve-like, allowing fire like winter rains to pour in and mercifully choose what goes, what, if anything, stays. I imagined books, photos, paintings surrounded and surrendered to the insatiable appetite of destruction, so like my appetite for acquisition that leaves little to imagine to fill with emptiness. Two years ago, I sifted through years of greeting cards Rich could not part with until he parted with his life and left behind treasures of no meaning to others. Returning home, I saw my own small history quietly cluttering corners, swallowing the present. Like fire, I swept through drawers and cupboards, clearing away the moments, the mementos of times lived and asking remembrance. Mm. 
When I thought my house had burned, was burning, as I climbed out of Paro's narrow valley toward Tiger's Nest, I carried not birthday cards, not books or grandmother's quilts and paintings, but the rabbits and squirrels, the puma and skunks, deer and trees tucked in my heart. I knew then what I loved. I know now what I will carry when, like others before me, I flee this life for the unknown fires of living fading behind me. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to close this ritual with song. And um, I am invoking host's prerogative um, to offer a nigun, which is a wordless, a wordless Jewish melody. Um, and I also want to encourage people to feel free to stay, if you'd like, just because we're, we're ending, um, closing the conversation and closing this piece of ritual doesn't mean we need to scoot out the door. We can stay and be community with each other. Before we sing, some closing words? Anything you would like to share? We can... Well, I'm just very grateful to be with all of you tonight. And I was reflecting on what you were saying, Mary, of, uh, to practice courtesy to your sorrow, to be courteous to it. Uh, there's a wonderful phrase by John O'Donohue, who died some years ago, an Irish poet, philosopher. He said, what you encounter, recognize, or discover depends to a large degree upon the quality of your approach. When we approach with reverence, great things decide to approach us. So imagine trying to approach your grief with reverence. Offer it courtesy. Show it respect. Be a good host. And then something great might approach you. We all have to work to be reworked here. And we cannot possibly walk this trail by ourselves. So, again, deep gratitude to all of you for being here. Thank you.
been listening to a TNS special community event with Francis Weller and Erwin Keller, held at Congregation Ne'er Shalom in Sonoma County, California. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.